it wasn't my job as a 20 year old from London, Ontario to make sure that uh, Amsterdam had a, a functional housing system. How can a set of skills lead you down the path to success? That's what we're setting out to answer on the Ed Up Canada podcast. I'm your host, Michael Sangster. Join me as we unpack how leaders around the world have taken training and skills and turned that into a lasting career. Now let's learn together. Welcome back to the Ed Up Canada podcast, where today we're going to talk about international students, housing, education, and life lessons with Mike Moffat. We'll get to Mike in a moment, but I want to start with just a comment here that, that I, I believe that Canadians generally agree that international students enrich our society and assist with our economic growth. They can add diversity and culture to our communities when we're enrolled responsibly and professionally. We've seen a lot of activity and a lot of conversation around these issues lately, but Canada was built by immigration, and that has made us a better place, a more diverse place. But recently, with costs of living surging in our country and housing being more in demand, policymakers are looking at the number of international students that reside in some communities. We've witnessed that conversation on the front pages of newspapers, at press conferences, cabinet retreats, and our guest today has been involved in the debate as a leading expert in housing and community issues. So with that, Mike, why don't we get started and talk about some of the issues Canada's facing in housings particularly and in communities. So let's start that with, why don't you just introduce yourself? We like to let the guests introduce themselves and say a few things about themselves, your own career and your own public service, because you've been a public servant in Canada in your own way. I have, yeah. Well, thank you for having me. So my name is Mike Moffat. I run something called the Place Center, which is a think tank associated with the University of Ottawa that does place-based research. I'm an economist by training. I have a PhD from Ivy Business School at uh, Western University. And I'm a policy wonk, and I've worked in a, a few different policy areas in the past, including as Canada's first ever chief innovation fellow back in 2017, where I worked for the federal government advising on all kinds of innovation policy. In recent years, I've kind of pivoted over to doing housing policy. And that's largely out of some of our innovation work. We were doing work about five or six years ago with uh, manufacturers in the greater Toronto area about labor shortages. And one thing that we kept hearing over and over again was that uh, manufacturers near Pearson Airport couldn't find workers because nobody could afford to live near Pearson Airport on a manufacturing wage. So there's been kind of this transition in our, in our work over the last few years from being more manufacturing and innovation focused over to more of a housing focus. I love the word policy wonk, the phrase policy wonk, because people use it where it is a badge of honor. And it's important. We probably, we picked on them, you know, at times policy people, we picked on them in some conversations, right? But you're, you wear that badge with honor, don't you? Yeah, no, I, absolutely. Absolutely. I, you know, I see someone who can, you know, kind of get their hands dirty with data, but also be able to tell a good story about what's going on and, and why it's happening. So yeah, absolutely. I totally wear that title with pride. And spaces and places are phrases that we're getting into. I remember being in some meetings with the National Capital Commission talking about place setting and, and building locations for people to go. So they're interesting conversations, aren't they? 
Absolutely. Everything happens in a place and the, and the challenges across the country can be very different place-based. So I grew up in, in London, Ontario, in the East End, in the manufacturing area that, that went through a real decline for 10 to 15 years, while other parts of the country did did relatively well. So every part of the country has its own challenges, and those can be very place specific. And, you know, in the, in the case of London, I would say like to the point where some of the challenges in the east end of the city may be different than those in the west end of the city. So absolutely, I like to take a real place-based lens to any of the work that I'm doing. Uh, you just have to look at the growth in our own city of Ottawa, the way we've expanded to the south and some of the planning that, or lack of planning that may have gone into some of that growth that's now leading to challenges in transit and other areas. So it is important to have policy wonks around that are looking at those things and thinking about them. So we like to dance around on this podcast and talk about careers and talk about people's own life too. So I'm interested, I haven't asked anybody this question before, but what was your favorite job in your life and, and what was it? And I'm going to, I'm going to jump off and tell you, mine was a carny. <laughs> I worked as a carnival worker in university selling little donuts across Western Canada. And I don't think I ever had as much fun as I did doing that, meeting people, engaging with people. I picked up a lot of skills doing that work. So I'm interested, what, what was your favorite job you've had? Well, uh, I mean, I, I should say my current one, just in case my bosses are, are listening, but that's too much of an easy answer. One of the best jobs I ever had was, was a baseball umpire. That's actually how I paid my way through undergraduate. And it was helpful. I'm not somebody who naturally goes looking for conflict. I'm not somebody who naturally, you know, wants to get into arguments and, you know, that kind of thing. But it taught me a lot of skills on, you know, how to both stand your ground, but also how to diffuse uh, situations. So it was, it was great training. It was stressful at first, particularly when I didn't necessarily have the skills and, uh, you know, my, my strike zone may not have been the most consistent, but I got, I got better at it. So, yeah, I, I look back on that fondly as uh, helping me develop a lot of skills that I still use to, today. And I never took the job for that reason. I mean, I just I love baseball and I, I needed to pay my tuition. But it's really helped me a lot in my career. Mike and I can see each other. You guys can't. But you got to give us a little story then if we're on sports about what's behind you. Yeah, absolutely. So behind me are two jerseys from Canada's national dodgeball team. And as I always say, yes, we do have them. So in 2013 and 2014, I was uh, head coach of uh, Canada's national men's team, and we won gold both years, uh, 2013 in New Zealand and 2014 in Hong Kong. And although you might not care about dodgeball, I, I'm sure you'll love this fact. In, in the finals in both years, we beat the Americans. And that's, you know, that's that's always the key when we can uh, go against our American rivals. But yeah, it's a, I, I love the sport. I know it's kind of goofy. We all think of the movie, but... For me, again, as somebody who loves baseball and particularly was never a particularly good hitter, uh, it was uh, you know it was hel helpful to be able to transfer those skills over. It's a lot like playing third base uh, for those of you who play base. You know, a lot of sort of quick reactions, quick release, that kind of thing. I absolutely love the sport. I'm 46 years old now. I don't move quite as fast as I used to, so I don't quite have the reflexes. I don't play too much anymore, but it's a, it's a nice little reminder behind me of uh, you know some of the things I, I've been able to do in my life. Well, I played ser some serious third base when I was a younger kid playing baseball, and, and I know what you mean. It's either the ball comes screaming at you, which I assume is a little bit what, what dodgeball at that level is like. So some interesting skills you picked up there. So let me transition that one to... We always ask people to give us some free advice for learners. You're, you're around education system. What would you say is the greatest skill you've learned throughout your career? 
And did you learn it early or later in your career? I think I kind of started my career making making a bit of a mistake. And, you know, I, I think the mistake that I made was thinking that I necessarily had to be the best at like one particular thing, being the best, you know, at doing a statistical study. And I think that can be a trap, you know, unless you're you're you're, you're Wayne Gretzky or, you know, Mike Trout or, or, or some naturally gifted person, you know, you're probably not going to be the best at the one thing you do. But I've discovered over my career, and I've, I've heard this advice from others, and I, I wish I heard it 10 years before that I did, was that you could carve out a really nice career having two or three or four complementary skills. By far, I am not the best statistician. You know, I'm not the best at doing some kind of econometric study. You know, far from it. I can tell a story. Am I the world's best storyteller? Yeah, absolutely not. But, you know, I can get by. I can craft a good story. Am I the world's best graphic designer? Well, no, absolutely not. But I'm competent at these things. And if you develop those competencies in, in kind of unusual combinations, you can really carve out a great career for yourself. So, you know, you can be kind of a, an average storyteller, you know, an average worker with data, an average writer. But that combination is exceptionally rare. It's, it's kind of helped me get to where I am today. So... I wish I knew that at like 15 or 16 or, or, or 20 because it's been incredibly valuable. And there are some skills that are just helpful in any domain. Being able to write, and I say this as somebody who hires a lot of people, being a at least competent writer will open so many doors to you. And that's not, again, a skill that naturally comes to me. If you ever talk to any of my high school English teachers, they will confirm this. But it's like anything else. It's any kind of like muscle you can keep, uh, you know, keep developing, keep working out. So that's always my advice to a lot of my uh, undergrads is, you know, don't necessarily think that you have to be the, you know, the, the top at any one skill. If you can combine a bunch of complementary skills together and figure out how they interact with each other, you can really become somebody who's irreplaceable, who, who can really do something, tell a story, be able to advance a policy, whatever it be. So yeah, that's always my advice, you know, develop a core set of complementary skills and you'd be surprised how valuable that is. It's amazing how many people who've been on have talked about writing skills and the lack of writing skills they find in people that are out there. And we just did an interesting three-person podcast with some people you'd know, I think Kathleen Monk, Ginny Roth mm -hmm. and Marlene Floyd. And all of them agreed on that writing skill, storytelling, being able to put something on a piece of paper that makes sense of something quickly and succinctly. Well, absolutely. And it, it, it's funny. I, and I do that with my students because I, th I think one of the things that we do too often at universities is get students to write 20 to 25 page papers where they're kind of padding things out and things like that. I will give my students assignment of like two pages or or maybe 10 PowerPoint slides or something like that. And at first they're always like, oh, this is, you know, Moffat's the easiest teacher ever. Everybody else is giving us 25 pages to do. He only wants two. And then at the end of it, they're like, oh, my gosh, that was so difficult, you know, condensing it down. But it's such an important skill. And I, I feel like too often in the education sector, we reward verbosity when, you know, really what, what's important is be able to distill information, you know, down to its basics. It's funny you say that. I'm good friends with a gentleman, General Rick Hillier, who's going to be on here in a little while. And he talks about, I've mentioned this before, his five slide rule when he was running the military. If you went to a sixth slide, he stood up and left the room. And if you said, well, the first one was a, power, was a title slide, he went, he still used it. Yeah, 
Like if you can't get this meeting done in an hour, and if you can't get this onto five slides, then you don't know what you're trying to ask for or try and do. Well, absolutely. In, in government, we have these things called two pagers, and I was always very insistent that that term be taken literally, which it, it often isn't in government. But I, I feel that's really important that if I tell somebody three things, they will probably remember all three. But if I give somebody 10 things, they might remember two. So there really is something, I think, to this philosophy that that less is more and, and really focusing down on the salient points. Let's cut to the chase here about some policy issues. You say you're policy wonk. I believe you've been at the last two cabinet retreats as an expert on some housing issues and some challenges facing the country. Let's get to that. I'm interested in what you see the role that international students are, are playing in the current problems in housing in Canada. And I'm very interested because I, what I get from you and from your actions since we've met is you're data-driven. So what's your research tell you about this topic? I think before we start this discussion, that it's important to recognize that it's not the students themselves that are the issue or or are causing the problem. You know, I've been an international student in in two countries, the United States and the Netherlands. And, you know, when I went to the Netherlands to study, it wasn't my job to make sure that Amsterdam's housing system was functional, right? That's, you know, the job. You were there on a, you were there on a dodgeball scholarship. I was, I was there on a dodgeball scholarship, one of those famous, famous dodgeball scholarships. But, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't my job as a 20 year old from London, Ontario to make sure that uh, Amsterdam had a, a functional housing system. And similarly, you know, if you're an 18 year old Dutch kid coming to Canada, it's not your job to make sure that Kitchener Waterloo has enough, enough apartments, right? It's, it's the job of sort of policymakers. And what we've seen over the last few years is, you know, a handful of schools really increase their enrollments of international students to, exceptionally high levels. In some cases, you know, one institution having over 30,000 new international students in one year and the local housing market just can't support that. That like you just you have more renters out there than than rental spaces available. And a lot of it just comes from a lack of planning. You know, if we had kind of planned this out, you know, had some kind of 10-year plan where we say, okay, this is, you know, we draw kind of a line and go, okay, this is what our population growth is going to be. And this is the number of houses we need to build. And this is what we need to do on on on-campus housing. I think we could have made it work, but it just, it was one of those systems that kind of grew organically that there was a lack of government oversight on it and we have a bunch of broken rental markets uh, because of it. it is is you know it is a very place-based problem southern ontario greater vancouver area you're seeing this a lot you go to say saskatchewan it's probably not an issue i agree and i appreciate your you're going back to the day and i really appreciate your comments because from day one we've come up this is not a problem with the international students right they're here trying to study trying to learn trying to get a new start in some cases. Our institutions, the career colleges, cannot offer the postgraduate work permits. We don't have as many study permits. We've, we've done our own research on it using the IRCC data. And one of the things I liked about you is that when we all got that data, data, you just put it out there for everybody to look at. Let's all take a look at it. That's the way we've treated it as well. Just put it out there and let everybody look at it. And what we've discovered is that we're less than 4.5% of the study permits in Canada right now in our institutions. But we got to do something because the system, I agree with the federal government and what they're doing. And I'm interested in your views because you meet with them. We agree with what they're trying to do because the system was out of control and it was crushing some communities. And we don't need to name institutions, but they were literally crushing some communities, weren't they? 
Yeah, no, they absolutely were. You see what's happening in rents in, in some market. And we do we do a lot of work here with municipal governments. And, you know, I talk to mayors, city councilors, chief planners, and so on. And they're like, look, we just can't keep up. You know, we're, we're trying to do what we can. But they can't even keep up with things like, like bylaw enforcement, right? Where you see investors turn homes into, you know, student rentals with a dozen or more beds in a three-bedroom home which shouldn't be happening, but cities just don't have the money for the bylaw enforcement to enforce that. And they're actually a little hesitant to, because the last thing they want to do is start throwing people on, uh, onto the street. So absolutely. It's just one of these systems that has grown kind of out of control. And it's just a matter of bringing some rationality back to it. So absolutely. You know, my, my only complaint with the federal government is that they didn't do this two years ago, that this should have been corrected. I think they've always been of the opinion that higher education is a provincial issue, so the provinces should take care of it. But you know, at the end of the day, uh, international students need a visa to be able to come over here, and that is within the federal jurisdiction. So they do have this lever, and I'm glad that they're finally using it. It really did elbow out of control in the last couple of years, and we saw that growth. It did escalate very, very quickly in some institutions. And I agree with you, but I also like some of the other things the government's doing around increased financial capacity of students before they get here, showing they've doubled the amount of money and resources that people need to have before they arrive so they know that we're, they're financially stable. Because we've seen it, and we've seen it in some communities where they've actively promoted, Brampton has actively promoted themselves as a community for international students, but now they're absolutely choked in the mayor, we need help. The kind of irony about all of this is we've really become victims of our own success. We were trying to increase the number of international students, and, and, and for some very good reasons. You know, if we go back 15 years or more, the federal government then kind of made the decision to integrate the higher education system into the immigration system, in part because we've always had a challenge in this country of recognizing foreign credentials. So it totally makes sense that instead of having people come over when they're 28 or 29 and they have a diploma from an institution that our employers aren't familiar with, have them come over at 18 or 19 you get a degree, diploma, professional credential, you know, whatever it be, and then apply for permanent residency. So it's one of those things where the core reason behind it is sound, that we were actively looking for growth, but it just, it got so out of control that we are a little bit, again, victims of our own success. I agree. And we're seeing the media now start to cover the story of where the numbers are more and more every day is IRCC helpfully released a lot of that data. So that's helping have that conversation about where the challenges are. We've chosen to stay on that high road. We talk about how many members we have that have these uh, international students. It's very small, but but we do need this training. There isn't a day. I, I was at a lunch today with Premier of Alberta and managed to catch a couple of minutes with her. And did she talk about the kind of workers we need in this country? Absolutely. The people they need in Alberta. And then she was very blunt with me about some of the concerns she has that she raised with me in the fall that we're working on. So we're, we all have to be part of this solution as we go forward. So I could ask you, do you see glimmers of hope having watched the last kind of two weeks of, of bedlam in the media? I do. Yeah. I, I, I think it's one of those issues where, where, you know, the first step is admitting that you have a problem and we've gone, we've gone to that. And, and yeah, like I, whether it be this issue or, or some of the other things on the housing file, when I step back, I am actually really surprised at how far we've come in the last two years. As somebody who's been working on this since about 2018 or so, you know, it does feel like there's been a sea change. So absolutely, I'm, you know, I'm cautiously optimistic. I, I think we are going in, in the right area. 
we'll have to see how the provinces start to you know divvy up the caps in in provinces like ontario and bc where the the caps will be somewhat binding i also hope we sort of recognize that absolutely we need international students we need robust immigration right and this should not be the takeaway from this should not be that okay we need to scale everything back and we just need to you know close the borders and that kind of thing it's just that we need to plan this and we need to make sure again that we have enough housing for those students to come in and that should be the goal is just like okay let's bring some rationality back to the system let's start getting some houses built and then let's get those student numbers back up again because yeah our, our population is, is aging and you could look at you know the skilled trades to nurses to you know whoever it's going to be hard enough in some industries just to replace the workers that we have, let alone to, you know, sort of build up the extra capacity we need in things like home building. So I think that's what we have to look at is is just having better planning between population growth policies and, and housing policies and, and other policies. So I think we can get there. And I'm, you know, I think the policy environment now is, is certainly better than it was a year ago. There's a certain irony, in fact, that our institutions and community colleges are quite good at training those skilled trades. And we've been working closely with the federal government on some projects that might be allow us to bring in some foreign students that would skill up in those areas because we need them to build the homes to help us get out of the problem. But there isn't necessarily the places for them to live in order to do the training. So it, it is a it's a bit of a nasty circle. But we're we're looking at the data and we're working well with them. So hopefully hopefully we'll find a path forward. So any other suggestions that you would have of what government could do to help in this housing area that you're an expert in? We've done a number of work with a variety of groups in, in Canada. So last summer, we released something called the National Housing Accord, where it was a group of academics, industry folks, and advocates like the Canadian Alliance and Homelessness. So it was an initiative that basically we, we in Ottawa last summer, we got, we got about 15 people split between those three sectors and locked them in a, a boardroom here in Ottawa for eight hours, you know, ordered some food and said, okay, like nobody leave until we uh, uh, solve this thing. And our mandate in that group was just looking at federal policy and just looking at the rental sector. And we came up with a series of recommendations, some of which the government's already done, like removing the, the HST on purpose-built rentals, like reintroducing the Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corporation catalog of pre-approved designs. That was something we recommended that the housing minister's done. There's a lot more things that, that we can do on that front. So back in the 1960s and 1970s, there were really generous tax incentives put in place to, to build apartment buildings. So if you go and look at any of those big kind of concrete apartment blocks, every city has lots of, those were built with those incentives. And there were components of that where if you sold the building, you had to use the proceeds to build another building if you wanted to keep your tax advantages. And it, it was highly, highly successful. We argue that they should be looking at bringing that back, you know, and there's a number, you know, there's any number of things that governments can do to build more housing. And again, I'm pleased with what we've seen. I, th I think the housing accelerator has been a, a, a fantastic idea. We're seeing provinces, whether it be Ontario, British Columbia and others, you know, do things on zoning. We've got municipal reform. So it's all very good things. We just need to push faster and harder simply because our, you know, we're about 3.5 million homes short, according to the CMHC. So that that's going to take a lot to fix. Well, I guess the other good news is you've got a strong advocate, Sean Fraser, and a great communicator too. So he gets things done. And that, that is important on this file. You can just, you just have to follow his Twitter feed and, <laughs> and, 
he's not building any homes, <laughs> but he's up there creating the conversations and the opportunities, isn't he? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think uh, Minister uh, Minister Fraser has been been fantastic. It does seem like like every week there's a, a new housing announcement, and it's not it's not all smoke and mirror. Like there's really transformative stuff coming from him. So yeah, and he sort of recognizes the importance of this issue. Again, one of the recent announcements was making universities and, and colleges eligible when they're building on-campus housing for some of the uh, lower interest rate programs that the, the CMHC offers. So, yeah, it, we've got a fantastic advocate in him. You know, we've seen Minister Callan out in BC, Minister Calandra here in Ontario. It feels like we've got some politicians out there who, you know, have that combination of being both good communicators, but but also we seem to be getting some real policy wonks in in these files, and I think that's absolutely fantastic. Minister Fraser is a bright guy. He's not just big tall guy. He's a big tall bright guy. I, I was right? gonna say, like I'm I'm six foot three, and I'm not used to looking up at people, but uh, you know, I've been in the same room several times with him, and yeah, I think he's a good inch and a half taller than I am. Yeah, it's fun when the meeting's over and he stands up and he just keeps standing Yeah, yeah, up. exactly. <laughs> he's just waiting for him to stop and he just doesn't. We've had some great conversations with him and, and I think he's been a little bit enlightened about our sector as well and what we are and what we aren't. A lot of misconceptions. We won't solve that today, but I want to circle back before we do a finishing question here to your first comment because I think it's important. None of us want to scapegoat these students that are here or the ones that are coming because they, you're right, they're not the problem. But the government had to step in and do something despite what some will say, they had to do something because this was going in a bad direction, in an even worse direction, wasn't it? It absolutely was. And I think this is good policy. And I think, you know, people can quibble here or there or kind of around the edges about, you know, maybe they could have done something slightly different. But but absolutely, I, I think they had to do something. My, my big concern was that if this was going to continue into next summer where you had, you know, colleges, you know, the one college in particular, 2021, they had 10,000 new students. 2022 was 20,000. 2023 was 30,000. If they're bringing in 40,000, so, you know, just continue that linear progression. You know, I truly believe that the, the summer of 2024, we would have hit a breaking point in a number of communities, particularly in Southern Ontario, that it just couldn't uh, be allowed to happen. And, and I think as well, I like the fact that the the federal government has actually left it to the provinces to figure out how to implement instead of doing a one size fits all thing that what you know Ontario needs might be different than what Nova Scotia needs or British Columbia needs so here's your cap you figure out how to allocate it you figure out your labor market needs best we're going to leave that up to you and I, and I think that's really important to recognize that we're in a federation and you know again I said before a place-based solutions so we're we're all about that here at the place center well, I'm glad you mentioned it, but that focus on labor force needs is so crucial. We've seen some conversations, read a Globe and Mail uh, op-ed on the weekend from the editorial board about the need for, we shouldn't be focused on support workers and truck drivers. Well, those aren't the students in the truck driving world that are coming in under this program, but we do need personal support workers. We need health care aides. We need pharmacy assistants. We need a lot of those roles. So let the local governments figure out what they need and go from there. That's my advocacy piece. It's, that's not why you're here. That's my job to go do. But I will say this. One of my concerns I had, we've, we've referenced this one institution without naming them. They were on a path, or they did in, in 2023, bring in more students than my entire sector across Canada. It's an astonishing number, and it does have to be flagged. That has to have an impact on a community. It just has to. So we'll go from there. I want to transition over because I like the policy wonk angle of what you're talking about. But I want to talk about your own life because... 
clearly successful. You're sought after. Uh, I like that fellowship. I like some of these creative new things we've seen in Ottawa. Some of these new thinkings that people have, have rolled out about different ways to consider issues or consider thinking. So I like to ask everybody, because we have listeners that are, you know, students, employers, instructors, some stakeholders, media, when we when we look at some of the people who listen to us and talk to us about it. Give a student or an instructor one great mentoring moment you had in your life that somebody that changed your own personal path. Yeah, so I'll have to give a shout out to my old boss at the the Moet Center, which is a, the policy think tank at the, or was a former policy think tank at the University of Ottawa, uh, Matthew Mendelssohn, who is a great, great mentor to me. And I, I think the biggest thing that he did was just kind of lead by example. He would kind of take me along places, take me to meetings, take me to presentations that, that he was doing and, you know, just uh, have me there, see what he was doing. And, you know, afterwards we would discuss what happened when he said, okay, well, you know, it allowed me to kind of ask questions about, okay, you know, why, why did you present things this way or that way? And probably had a million annoying questions and he never kind of got frustrated, uh, frustrated at that. And I, th- I think that's, that's really important to be able to lead by example. A big thing for me is that I lead a team now. I never ask anyone on my team to do something that I wouldn't personally do, right? I don't ask somebody to say, okay, you know, I want you to go meet this person or do that thing. If it would be something that I would be uncomfortable with. And I, and I'm always the kind of first to have that uh, tough meeting, have that uh, challenging thing and, and, you know, have my staff kind of see that. I think, I think that's one of the most important things. And the other thing, you know, I try and do as, as a boss is admit when I've screwed up, which doesn't, I don't think happens nearly enough. And I've, I've had good ba- bosses and bad bosses. Now I've always found the one thing that has always bothered me with the bad boss is just the, the inability for them to admit they've made a mistake. A lot of what I do is, you know, 20% doing the right thing and 80% avoiding doing the wrong thing and just trying not to be any, any of the jerks that I've ever met in my life. I gotta say, okay, you know what? That always upset me. So I'm going to run away far away from that as possible and not, not do that to the, the folks working under me. I worked for a great gentleman, George Blake at one point in my career. And, and I know starting up with some of the work I was doing in Ottawa for the, for the companies that I was telling him stuff he knew, but I never heard. I know that. He always treated everything like it was the first time he'd ever heard it. And I realized that he was leading me in a different way. He was helping me learn. He was helping me feel important in the process. But he was also collecting all the data points, too. And if you heard it for three or four people. And I talked to him about it later on. And he said, no, no, if, if I shut you down from sharing by saying, I know that, then you're not going to share as much. And I'm not actually going to know that from three different people. And then he would drill down and go, who do you know that from? How do you know that to make sure we weren't getting it from the same people or the same sources and just counting it four times, but the same person told us once. It was a really good mentoring moment for me that you got to listen to people. You got to include them. You got to listen to them too. Absolutely. Yeah. And I've tried to do that as well. And again, that's not necessarily a skill that comes naturally to me. I tend to be a little bit on the impatient side, but yeah, absolutely. Stepping back, hearing things because it's, you know, it's always useful to to hear that because they might 30 seconds, 60, 90 seconds in, they start in the same place, but they take it to a different perspective or they throw in a fact that you hadn't heard. So, so absolutely allowing uh, allowing folks to be heard and, you know, and not just go, oh, okay, I've heard this before. I don't need to hear the rest. It's, you know, it, it's absolutely damaging to that relationship. So I, I couldn't agree more. 
another one on that was I joined as a chief commercial officer of an aerospace company. And I right away realized they had a policy that always two people in meetings, always two people traveling and always, and, and it, I didn't quite get it. And the chief commercial officer, I got this, I'll go do the meeting, come back and report. What I didn't realize in the lesson I learned at that point was that someone hears something differently too. And where you thought they may have been mad, they actually were agreeing with you in a different way and they were showing you a different path and you didn't hear it in the meeting because you were focused on doing this face-to-face thing. And that was a good lesson for people to learn too as they go forward. Oh, that's that's interesting. Yeah, it's uh, what is that old Japanese movie like Rashomon, where it's the same thing as one event, the same from four different perspectives. I think that's useful as well. I always like, you know, if I'm in a meeting with folks, and I have to admit, I don't always do the, uh, you know, bring someone with me side. But yeah, I always, I always like the, the debriefs after meetings, because I will be surprised how often you know, my takeaway from it might be different than than the folks in there where, you know, I might think something went badly and and turns out I just misinterpreted or vice versa. I might come out thinking like, oh, yeah, no, they really agreed with me. Just if I in doubt, they're like, no, actually, Mike, uh, I am not quite sure he did. We've gone from Rashomon to dodgeball. Uh, I'm waiting for a waiting for Guffman uh, reference on this show at some point. So I think we'll Leave it there, but I, I want to just ask you to finish up on a couple of things. One, whether, whether there's someone that got you into this housing area that inspired you to go look in this area and spend your time here, or if it was a moment in time, and then just any last thoughts in the last few moments that we've got here to talk about what you've, I'm interested maybe in a perspective on what you've seen over the last 10, let's say even six months from that cabinet retreat in PEI, I believe, until today. Some of the things you've seen and, and why you are optimistic, just to finish on that note. So on the housing piece, again, there was a couple things. The first was the sort of professional one of, you know, doing the, doing this work in, in manufacturing and hearing these stories. But we also, I, I moved from London, Ontario in, in 2017, moved up to Ottawa. And, you know, back in 2017, you know, London's economy still really hadn't recovered from the, you know, the manufacturing decline that had started 12, 15 years earlier. We had one of the highest unemployment rates in the country. It seemed to be us and Windsor, you know, fighting for for one, two. And we sold the house and we put it on the market and we had a realtor who suggested a price. And I was like, oh, that's that's way too much. And then we got, you know, we had a bidding war and we got 15% over asking. And again, at a time when our economy was not doing well. So it was it was kind of one of those personal things or, you know, kind of piqued my interest in an economist because I'm just like, okay, this doesn't, this doesn't make sense. It's it's something I I try and take with me is to, you know, always try and take this information in, you know, that you can always isolate this kind of work side of your life to your personal side. But, uh, you know, I always try and any kind of life experience kind of incorporated into my work. And, you know, I also don't mind my work transforming over time. Right. Because the thing is, like, everything affects everything. You know, one of the things I, I think people get can get wrong a, a, as a policy wonk that we too narrowly focus on, on an issue. So let's say your issue is getting more people to use public transit. Let's say that's what motivates you and so on. Well, I think the first thing you have to do is figure out why people aren't using transit as much as you want them to, right? So you have to go out there, you have to get that information and that's, you know, combination of, you know, polling and anecdotes and what have you. But it also may cause you to have to develop expertise in in something else. So, you know, if what you're hearing over and over is, let's say, fears of crime, 
then if you are going to do public transit work, you're going to have to at least know something about public perceptions of crime and crime policy and that kind of thing, right? That, that in my view, like everything affects everything. And that's one of the big things that I've really tried to take in, in my career is just, you know, just understanding all of these connections, all of these sort of intersection points. So on the housing side, you know, how things have gone over the last six months. Yeah, I, I am cautiously optimistic. I, I think there there's more to do. I'll be interested in seeing, uh, you know, where this takes me in, in the next couple of years that we might find ourselves finding that, okay, well, I, you know, the reason why we're not building enough housing is because issues around, you know, draining wetlands or, or, you know, you know, flood policy or things like that. So you and I might be talking two to three years from now and you go, okay, we've got Mike Moffat on, you know, there's Canada's re resident expert in flooding policy or, or, you know, floodplains or what have you. So that's, you know, it's just a, the interesting nonlinear way that these things, these things evolve. And I'm always trying to look out six, 12, 18 months, you know, further and go, okay, where this is where we are today where are we going to be next? What are we going to be talking about, you know, at Christmas or in 2025? And how can we start thinking about these things today? That's a really, really good perspective. And just, you just have to look at our, our own relationship. You never thought you'd be sitting here on a podcast talking to the National Association of Career Colleges and what we do. And I, and I think you've learned a little bit about us in the last week. And I appreciate you taking the time to join us. I think a lot of people think we're the problem. We don't think we are. We think we're part of the solution and we'll keep fighting for that, that argument. Uh, but I appreciate you taking the time, being open to talking to us and better understanding who we are and what we're doing. And uh, as I said over and over again, we're open to it. We're open to trying to do better and look at new ways. And you're right. We may be thinking about brand new ways of doing a lot of this work and what some of the issues really are that we weren't thinking about last week or the week before. So I appreciate you making the time today. No, Well, thank you. Thanks uh, so much for having me. I really enjoyed the chat. So thank you, everybody, for joining us again on the Ed Up Canada podcast. We look forward to you uh, hearing, having you hear from us again soon. I can't promise the next episode we'll talk about umpiring and dodgeball, but uh, I promise you we'll, we'll keep having important conversations about training in Canada and life mentoring lessons. So thank you all. We'll see you again soon. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Ed Up Canada podcast. We release new episodes regularly. So make sure you hit that subscribe button so you know when they are officially out. If you love this episode, please leave a four or five star review wherever you listen to your podcast so that others can also discover how a set of skills can lead to success. Thanks for learning with us.